1: Chris and Amy on KMOX. It is after 1030 on a Thursday, which means it's time to talk to Chief Washington Correspondent for CBS News, Major Garrett, who is the author of The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie, also the host of the Takeout podcast and the Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen." Uh, two really great podcasts, and Major Garrett with us on the Quiver River Electric guest line. Good morning, Major. Major, are you with us? I am. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes, we hear you perfectly fine. So let's start with the most recent news, George Santos and the Ethics Committee, um,
2: their findings. So what happens next? Well, George Santos just put out a statement saying that the Ethics Committee is completely wrong, unfair, biased, but he will not seek re-election in 2024. That will probably not quiet his congressional critics, and there are many in both parties, and there may be an effort now to uh, revisit the question of expulsion. The Ethics Committee report uh, on a bipartisan basis says many of the same things that the Justice Department has alleged in criminal indictments against George Santos, that he knowingly filed false campaign finance reports, that he manipulated uh, potential donors, and did other things uh, askew of federal election law and congressional campaigning regulations. So that's where things stand. The Ethics Committee essentially on a bipartisan basis is saying most, if not all, of the charges brought by the Justice Department against Santos are legitimate based on its own independent investigation and handed their findings over to the Justice Department in case it was curious. Basically saying, Santos, from the Ethics Committee's point of view, you are guilty as charged, and you have brought disrepute onto the House of Representatives, and the House recognizes you as someone who does not live up to the even lowest standards of ethics in the chamber. Say he won't run for re-election, whether or not he can fill out his entire term, according to the uh, House of Representatives itself, we don't know.
3: All right. Moving on to there was a protest outside the Democratic National Committee headquarters last night. um, Over 200 people uh, protesting for a ceasefire, but things got violent. They got out of hand. The people started pushing uh, dumpsters in front of the exits, blocking the DNC, which had to be evacuated. Uh, What do you know about that situation?
2: I was flying back from Atlanta last night, so I wasn't here. I wasn't an eyewitness. I've been sifting through the various reports. And as is often the case in matters like this, there are different interpretations. Those who were protesting say Capitol Police were too aggressive in pushing them back and exhibited signs of intolerance and possible brutality. Many members of Congress who were inside the Democratic National Committee headquarters, and people should know, you think about Capitol Hill on the House side of the Capitol, come down the hill ever so slightly, and slightly to the south, that's where the DNC headquarters is located. So it's in the general neighborhood of the U.S. Capitol, not right next to it, but pretty close. So Capitol Police jurisdictionally would be there and on on alert, and they were the ones who intervened the underlying tension is the political matter that democrats most have to and continuously focus on what is the political matter there are those in the progressive wing of the democratic party who are not siding necessarily with hamas though maybe some are but they are definitely siding with palestinians and they believe the israeli response to the october 7th terrorist attack within israel is disproportionate It is a war crime or borderline war crime and they want democrats from President Biden on down, to say as much. And that protest was about expressing that opinion. And the clash went on. There were a couple of arrests. About six Capitol Police officers, as the reports indicate, were injured to some degree or another, but this is an example and an illustration of the tensions within Democratic Party constituencies about what's playing out between Israel and Gaza.
1: What have they done differently, if anything, about security? You would imagine it's pretty secure most of the time uh, anyway. Are they yes. they're taking the added precautions here?
2: I'm sure they will. I'm sure okay. they will. And look, several members of Congress were inside the Democratic National Committee headquarters. Why? Well, because that is typically a place where members of Congress or senators will go to make fundraising calls. You can't, under federal law, and this is a good thing, not a bad thing, make fundraising calls from your office. (laughs) You have to keep these things separate. So oftentimes members will go over to the DNC and work the phone banks to raise money. And so several were there. I don't know if they were there for that. They could also be over there for general meetings and uh, confabs with pollsters and strategists. Lots of things happen there. But several had to be escorted out and are escorted out in sort of a protected way to maintain their security. So it was a tense situation, very tense. And this is essentially something coming to the DNC doorstep that's been on college campuses across the country.
3: Uh, Meanwhile, something we we didn't talk about uh, in great detail was the pro-Israel march Mm -hmm. on Tuesday. Over 300,000 people—I know Mm -hmm. 290,000 people went through the metal detectors. There were perhaps thousands outside of that. Uh, Relatively, uh, all I know of is is that was peaceful. There was nothing going on there.
2: Right, exactly. Uh, And those who are staunch supporters of Israel would say— there's an important distinction and difference there to be noted, that there are larger numbers of people who support Israel, will do so publicly, will do so peacefully, will do so as a part of their, their religious heritage or their affinity for the state of Israel or their general sense that Israel is an ally in a democratic nation-state in the middle of a very tough neighborhood. And let's compare and contrast the numbers and the activity. Things were not violent. They did not get out of hand in any way, shape, or form in the pro-Israel march. The smaller demonstration that was pro-Palestinian and in some cases might have been, I wasn't there, I don't know what people said, so I don't want to say, but it might have been slightly pro-Hamas or maybe stridently pro-Hamas, I don't know, but that's a difference. And this is the fault line that's existing in the country writ large, and I hope people will listen, if they didn't already, to last week's episode of The Takeout, because I had Jack Reed, who's the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and we had a conversation about this. And he said, look, you can question the conduct of Israel in this war and not be anti-Semitic. You can question the settlement policy for many years of the Israeli government, particularly under Benjamin Netanyahu in the West Bank and other places, and do so without being anti-Semitic. You can support Palestinian civilians dying as a result of the Israeli incursion into Gaza without being pro-Hamas yet in our aggressively amplified social media culture all of these lines which can be clear get blurred and people get painted with one thing or another that puts them in the most strident and repulsive position even if they're not taking that which leads to confusion which leads to rage which leads to anger which leads to conflict that is part and parcel in miniature about this debate which is a broader problem in our American political dialogue right now. We assume the worst about people we disagree with. And when you assume the worst, lots of antisocial, borderline violent things can happen.
1: That is extremely well said. The uh, meeting between the president and uh, Xi Jinping yesterday Mm -hmm. in San Francisco, a lot of the reports were that there was some progress made. Uh, China was not happy with him using the word dictator. So, um, all right, what what, Yes, was it good or not? Well,
2: well, how dare you? How dare you speak the truth? What is is wrong with you, Mr. American President? Don't you know you're supposed to Adhere to all the diplomatic niceties, and one of the diplomatic niceties is not to say what is obviously true. <laughs> well, you know,
3: that's what diplomacy is. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the definition of true. diplomacy. Don't say yes. what is obviously true. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yikes.
2: So, so what's the so, bottom so, so line guess, here? The, the, there are several bottom lines, and look, um, China has made itself a massively relevant and potentially threatening presence throughout Asia and in the global economy. It has used its economic success in the last 20 years to massively increase the size and potency of its military. It is throwing its weight around in the South Pacific in ways that are alarming to the Philippines, Australia, Vietnam, and other countries, many of which are now drifting in our direction or running in our direction for protection. Our longstanding allies, South Korea, Japan, recognize this And we're all sort of teaming up to make sure that those who are not China will not be bullied or intimidated by China. Intellectual property theft runs rampant. Fentanyl, the processing thereof, sending it to Mexico, then across our border is a huge concern, all of which was raised. Pressing those issues and getting the Chinese to respond instantly is virtually impossible. The Chinese do not respond instantly. They respond over time. And the levers of power used by American governments, Trump, Biden, Bush, Obama are gradual in their intensity. But it is clear in this country on a bipartisan basis that China is a nemesis and it is an imperative if you want to be the national leader of this country, either in office now if you're President Biden or any future occupant of the presidency, is an aggressive posture against China is now a given. This is different for China and it's having to reconcile itself to that unhappy reality.
3: Major, I know you are a student of history, so if you have seen that Osama bin Laden's letter to America is gaining a lot of traction on TikTok with younger generations, not necessarily kids, but even in their mid-20s and 30s, and how it is shaking their world view. And it is strikingly, well, I would say they're justifying or seeing the justification for September 11th. Can you tell me what, what you think of that phenomenon we're seeing on TikTok? Why and how big of a concern it is to you?
2: So I want to be careful here uh, because, A, I'm not on TikTok. B, that means I'm very slow to get to these things that are are cycling through TikTok. And C, I will say this in broad strokes about the question you asked, acknowledging again the first two things. I'm not on and I'm slow to the uptake when something is moving at a heavy pace on TikTok. For 20- and 30-year-olds in our country, there is a question that is not sufficiently answered for them. And it's either a result of the way they were raised by their parents, the cues they got from their parents, the cues they got from public schools, the cues they got from the culture in which they were raised. They are less certain than I think any generation previously in America about the benefits and the strengths of our system. Not only are they less certain... They are becoming hardened skeptics about democracy, what it means, capitalism, what its benefits are, and the sense that the system in this country can, if you work hard and are diligent and play by the rules, can lead to your own success. They are not just skeptical. They are becoming hardened cynics about that. And this is something I think we need to be honest with ourselves about. And I've talked to people in Union leadership, I've talked to people who work in evangelical and religious communities, and they sense this question that they get from younger either members or employees or participants. Like, what is this thing, America? Why why do you think it's so great? I think it looks awful. And their core assumption is there's something really fundamentally wrong here, and they're receptive to things that sort of question everything that you— and I and I think most people listening to our voices not only assume, but fundamentally believe in. I fundamentally believe in the past, present, and future of the American experiment. But there is a generation that is deeply doubtful about that. And we need to understand their doubts and we need to reach out to them and explain to them the core benefits and the resiliency And the perpetuating nature of the American experiment to get them to understand why this system is not only different, but to my way of thinking, and I believe your way of thinking, and most people who can hear my voice way of thinking, better. We need to take the time to understand their skepticism is hardening, and we've got to reach out to them and explain, in our own words, why, though not perfect and sometimes dissatisfying, is so much better than any other conceived or conceivable alternative
1: major Garrett, who is on the takeout this week
2: so for many many years from 2012 to 2021 the Washington Post was edited by a gentleman named Marty Baron Marty Baron before that was the editor of the Boston Globe before that he was the editor of the Miami Herald as an editor of all three of those newspapers covered massive stories and won many Pulitzer Prizes he has among the most formidable careers in modern American journalism, Marty Barron is our guest on The Takeout this week.
1: Got a text message from a listener that says, just wanted to let Major know his podcast, Agent of Betrayal, cuts into our show because I can't, well, he's talking about our, our show here, uh, because I can't wait to listen to the next episode. That's not how you're supposed to do oh, it. I mean,
3: you can't get rid of us to listen. I mean, no, you can
2: you
1: can do listen, both.
3: You can do both. You can love both of us equally. Yes. Wow, Major. Yes.
2: Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, The texter, thank you. To anyone who hasn't jumped in yet, if you've been waiting for it to be in bingeable quality, today we dropped the final of eight episodes, at least so far. We may have a ninth episode, but right now it's eight episodes. You can listen to the whole thing. And I say with that, Happy Thanksgiving.
1: Thank you, Major.
3: Happy Thanksgiving, Major. Thank
1: you, Major. All right. See you guys. Uh, talk to you in a couple of weeks. That is Major Garrett's chief Washington correspondent mm-hmm. for CBS News. No, you're doing it wrong, man. Yeah, you, We're like, podcasting too. There's 24 hours
3: in a day. Bro, there's so much time to so listen to our time. show, the
1: entire show, on the podcast, on the Odyssey app, and also on the Odyssey app, Major Garrett's podcasts, mm-hmm. plural, The Takeout and Agent of Betrayal. Both are great.